Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Brian Lyles, who is a developer, open source contributor, and international speaker. Brian is currently a senior staff engineer at VMware. Brian Lyles, it's a pleasure to have you on Maintainable. Hey, thanks for asking me to come chat with you. So first off, what do you believe are common attributes of a healthy and maintainable software code base? Well, that's a super loaded question, and there I could probably talk about 20 minutes on that topic, but let me pick a few that I think are important. Maintainable means that you can change it and have confidence and change it. So it's beyond having tests. It just means that to me, simply, if, if I was telling my team, is that we can add a feature or remove a feature and we don't have to rewrite the whole entire application. It also means that we can have a transient team so we can have people roll off the project and roll on it and we don't need a long indoctrination cycle. And then also, it just means that there's a project that we can actually make changes to because some projects get so complex, you can't change them anymore. When you talk about the transient team aspect, have you in your teams that you've been a part of been able to kind of measure that in an effective way, like the time it takes to onboard? Or is it kind of like a gut feeling the team has? This is a complicated thing to get someone introduced to the project and they can be productive pretty quickly. Have you seen any ways, any measurable approach to that? No, it's all been anecdotal, but after doing this for literally decades now, what I've noticed is anytime that we're bringing a new developer and they're new to not only the team, but maybe they're new to the company as well, it's going to take them between two and three months to, first of all, establish rapport with the team and get comfortable with shipping software. Because it's not about how smart you are. It's about your comfort level when it comes to doing things that you didn't create. So I say by 90 days, we can pretty much have anyone ready to go and shipping code. Nice. And it's one thing that we do. We work on a lot of existing like Ruby on Rails applications, primarily in my company. And when we're bringing in people, one of our goals is that first week, like how can we find a project that they feel like they can contribute to so they can find some sort of, we want people to feel like they can contribute early and often. And I think that also says a lot about the code base itself. And I think that's an important thing to consider there. How have you and, you know, in the teams you've been a part of defined technical debt? How do you talk about that with your team? All right. So the technical debt, I eschew all the conventional wisdom. And what I say is, Technical debt is a credit card. You can get a credit card and you can have a limit of, say, $10,000. You can charge, charge, charge. But when that payment comes due, if it's a MasterCard or Visa, you know, you can pay your monthly minimum and some interest charge. And hopefully that's not too bad. But if you have an Amex card, it's not one of their credit cards. It's actually a charge card. You're going to have to pay that $10,000 off at the end of the month. I use that analogy whenever it comes to writing software. Most times we're in the Visa and MasterCard realm where we take on debt to move faster. So I need to buy some clothes for my kids. You know, money's a little tight this month. To keep things moving forward, I put it on my charge card. But I know in March I have a bonus coming. So it's not really a big deal. We'll take those interest payments. It's not going to be that much and we'll pay it all off. 
that's fine until you get to the point where you've maxed out your credit card and your bonus doesn't come and you lose your job. Now what happens? Now you're in a mess because now not only can you not pay your bills, your credit rating is actually affected. And the way that this ties to software is that, especially in early parts of software, we can take on debt because, first of all, we might not know the solution, but also because it's not that big of a deal. So a good example would be we wrote this feature. It was pretty complicated to figure out. We're, we're interfacing with somebody else's API. And because of time and we're trying to move fast, we didn't write tests. And we didn't write tests, not because we're lazy developers. We didn't write tests because we couldn't figure out how to test it. And because one, our implementation was a little immature. And two, it's just hard. So we take on that code as debt. And what we'll need to do is make sure in the coming months that we actually figure out how to test it and get test coverage around that. And once we do, you know, we basically, we paid our credit card bill off. The problem becomes is now if we don't pay that debt down and we start basing features on this thing that wasn't very well tested and actually even wasn't a good implementation. And now we're trying to base features on that. Now we have real problems and we get to the problem now where we can't pay our debts and development stops. And that's how I look at technical debt. Do you find that when, like in your experience of working with different teams over the years, that sometimes people miscategorize something else as technical debt? Yeah, that, I think that happens commonly. Software is all about trade-offs. We have to optimize somewhere. And lost times, we optimize to move fast rather than move robustly. And sometimes I feel that people use technical debt as a weapon to say that if you have debt, something's wrong. Well, actually, no. I use my credit card. I don't actually use cash. I use my credit card or my charge card from Amex all the time, but I pay it off every month. What does that allow me to do? First of all, it allows me to not have any cash. I don't lose any extra cash. And the same thing goes with software development projects. We take on debt in the short term so we can move faster in the long term because sometimes we're not perfect people. We need to understand and we need to take on this tech debt to get us to the next level, which one, might actually bring in more money, or two, get us to a place where we can understand what we're actually doing. Do you believe that at a certain point, there's ever a scenario in software where there's zero technical debt, like you've been able to pay it all off? Or is it kind of always this kind of rolling thing that you're kind of borrowing against if you're keeping up with it to some degree, but like... I mean, yeah, I think so. It's rare. You may never, ever see it. And to all the listeners, you may never see it. I can think of only a few projects and I'll give you one example, something written in Ruby like 13 years ago, Get WTF. The reason I like this software is because it's done. You install it as a Git plugin, you run Git space WTF. It tells you what's going on, what hasn't been merged in the master, what actually branches are sitting out there. At that point, there is no more technical debt. The software does what it needs to be done and it'll never need to be changed again unless Git changes its protocol and then we're in somewhere else. But for the majority of us, we'll never get there. So since software is never done, we'll never stop being in the place where we will stop taking on technical debt. Let's take a moment to get to know a little bit more about your backstory. So what led you to join the software industry in the first place? I've been doing computers since the 80s. My dad bought me one. I was 10 or 11. He worked for the Army and he worked for some super secret agency that actually had a lot of computers and a lot of computer training manuals. He brought me home books on languages like C and Ada, and I learned those first. And then I learned Assembler. I just thought it was neat. And like every kid, I wanted to write games, but not just any games. 
I wanted to write like crazy graphical games and, and use math. Through high school, it was the same thing. And then in college, I realized quickly that all the things that they were teaching me, I already knew. Here's the crazy part. 18-year-old Brian didn't know this, but 40-plus Brian does know this. I missed out on a lot of things. One, I didn't go to a great school. And two, it's not about what you learn. It's about who you're learning with. And you're not only learning the theory behind computer science, you're also learning the empathy around people who are learning how to write software together. So I did that. And then I've been working since I've been 18. I've been working for a long time on various things from doing um, security things on the bad and the good side, on writing web pages, actually making a lot of noise in Ruby on Rails years ago. I've written machine learning software. I had to read a math book, but I did it. And now I'm in the distributed systems world and I write software for Kubernetes, which is let me run my software on many computers. So I've seen a lot of different things. And here's even a crazier thing. A few years ago, I got back into like augmented reality. So I was writing stuff from scratch to do augmented reality. I just like writing software. Earlier, you were talking about how maybe there's a scenario working on projects where it's difficult to start you're building against an API and you're not sure where to, couldn't figure out how to test it yet. If I recall, you're also responsible for coining the term T-A-T-F-T. Can you share what that stands for for our listeners? It stands for test all the freaking time. The genesis of this term is funny. So back in 2007 or 2008, I hadn't actually done a conference talk at that time, but I got picked as like an alternate for a conference talk and they let me talk. I had to talk about testing because I always like the idea of testing, but to spice it up a little bit, because most of the talks are boring, I put test all the friggin' time every other slide. I thought it was funny, but it actually resonated with people. As I started thinking about testing as not something we do, but as a way to check ourselves and make us better developers, I really started getting into it and talking with some of the people who like pioneered some of the stuff like Jim Wyrick when he was still alive. And they started using my words. And what I realized is I created this slogan as kind of a joke, but really what it did is it got a whole generation of developers to write tests. And I knew it was really crazy when I started seeing job offers with CATFT in them. And I was like, this is crazy. I like to say that I really helped a whole generation of Ruby developers become people who think about tests as first-class things, not as just something we do at the end of our project. And you're specifically touching on automated testing in that scenario? So actually, I never did. So testing is whatever it is. So you have like old school thinking about your testing pyramid, where at the top you have your end-to-end test. And then in the middle, you might have some integration tests. And at the bottom, you have unit tests. And because it's a pyramid, you're going to have way more unit tests than integration tests than end-to-end tests. So I do think about automated in some case. So my face was on the Cucumber site for years. I was right on the front page. I think about that, but I also think about using tests as a tool to make you a better developer, to make you quicker. So it's basically, we can program these smarts in our tests to make sure that we're not sloppy or that when we change things that we can just confidently do it and not to look backwards. So it is sometimes about automated, but then it comes down to the theory of testing. It's like, why do we test? And I remember in Rubyland where we're talking about testing our privates and you know, do we test the outsides versus the insides? I never came up with a good answer for that. And I think the reason was because there isn't a great answer for it. There is someone's opinion. What I liked about that whole thought was that it got people thinking about why they write tests and how the tests work. 
So now that I do TypeScript and Python and Go and a tiny little bit of Rust, I bring those lessons over. And I think it just helped me learn those languages quicker and helped me be a better developer. How have you been able to adapt some of that? I think even just this week that we're recording this, you released a new open source project. What's the name of that project? It is called Octan. And what is that accomplishing? Yeah, so I was talking a couple seconds ago about this thing called Kubernetes. invented at Google five years ago. It really is a way to scale out your software, run your software like Google does on big clusters, small clusters, but you don't have to worry about how it runs. And it takes care of all the name lookups and the storage and the networking. So what I wrote was basically a graphical user interface for it. As a developer, I want to be able to know what's in my Kubernetes cluster. Here's a tool for it. Now you don't have to be an expert. And this is actually a theme of my whole life. Let's democratize tech. Let's make the hard things easy and the impossible things attainable. That's a Jay-Z quote, loosely held. That's like a web-based thing or is it a desktop app? So it actually is a desktop application. It's a desktop application written in Go with a TypeScript Angular thing on the front end. And the neat thing about Go is because it's compiled, what you can actually do is you can take all of your generated JavaScript you can pack that into this file, basically bytes, and you can load it in memory when the application runs. So you can actually ship whole websites in one binary. It's a neat project from the top to the bottom. So it's a desktop application. One day it'll probably be an Electron application, but I mean, I can only learn a couple things at a time. So right now it just runs locally. It uses your own credentials to talk to the cluster and it's all contained in one file. And it runs on Windows, Mac, and Linux. That's awesome. Hope that goes really well for you. And that, and that was a project that you're doing during your tenure at VMware? Yeah. So for the listeners who don't really know me, I worked at a company called Heftio, and I worked for two of the founders of this project called Kubernetes. It was kind of a big deal. And I worked on a couple of projects from them from like doing some like crazy language VM stuff. But last fall, we we're like, you know what? It'd be cool if we had a project of this type. So we started writing it. And then a few months later, they sold the company to VMware. So now I work there. So over the years, what types of processes has your teams you've been a part of uh, implemented to help keep on top of your team's technical debt and things like that in terms of keeping things more maintainable? Like on a practical level, like are there actual like people making a list of things somewhere or how have you handled that? Yeah. So on all my teams, I've been lucky over the past few years for at least the past last 10 where we're using something like GitHub or GitLab. And I encourage everyone on my team to say, you know, create an issue for everything. If something doesn't seem right, you know, we'll go back and triage it. So getting my team to write everything down is one thing. It gets the conversation out of someone's head. It gets it out of the synchronous Slack and it puts it somewhere where everyone can see it. And then what I do is I start off doing this usually is we start categorizing things of things we care about, things we don't care about and things that must get done. And some people call it things like icebox, backlog, your current sprint backlog, and things like that. So generally, that's what happens. Like right now for Octant, we're using this project called ZenHub. Open source projects, it's free. It just allows you to have swim lanes for managing your GitHub issues. It's actually pretty neat. One thing that we do constantly, if it's not me and the whole team, it's me and another senior engineer in a team, is we are constantly refactoring the backlog only because... We realize that software is dynamic. We are not smart enough to understand what future us are going to think. 
So what we do is because we know that's true, we actually just spend a lot of time shuffling things around, changing our course and trying to figure out the best path. So a good example of that would be we were going to release the new version of this software, the next minor release a week after next. And we had a whole bunch of features. But of course, you release new open source to the world. And what happens? It crashes. So we had to you know, readjust. But that's cool because we knew that was going to happen. At least I knew it was going to happen. So we buffered in time. So that's how I work all the time. And really what it is, is it's trying to make everyone understand that the ideas, once they're in the backlog, they're everybody's ideas and no one owns them. It's the team. And it's the team's responsibility to make sure that we make good software. It's not me as basically the senior engineer on the team. It's not my number two, one of the team leads. It's everyone's problem from the leadership to if you just started last week. I like that idea that you're constantly refactoring and revisiting that. And have you seen that work well in environments where it's not just the developers that are maintaining the priorities, but also maybe like a product owner that's maybe has a different set of goals. Yeah, I, I haven't solved this problem yet. Product is one of those frontiers in our realm of writing software where rarely, I mean, sometimes actually, we'll find great product people that understand how software is made. And they understand that software is a process that you can have all the ideas, but it's like going to war all your plans change when someone shoots at you. But then you get the product managers. We have this idea and they'll go the end run and they'll sell it to management. And the management will say, oh no, we got to do this to make our goals, whatever they are. And basically now the developers are, they have to do these things, even though it's not the best. And I know there's a lot of talk with big A Agile and little A Agile and how to get around this, but I really do believe that for good product people to work with good developers, there needs to be a lot more conversation. And we need to realize that, yes, we do need to hit certain goals to make our budgets and make money, but software is not exact. Because if it was exact, why can't we just write software that will write the software that makes us money? <laughs> and by you laughing, you realize that's the silliest thing ever. Um, there's a lot of people involved in making software because either we don't know or we can't know. So a lot of adjustments constantly. Do you think that with all the third-party software tooling that we have available today as software developers, you know, we have all these, like, even like GitHub's always, like, you know, releasing new features and GitLab and all these other platforms and CI systems and things that glue everything together. Do you think it is more or less complicated to maintain software now than it was, say, 10 to 20 years ago? I think it's harder to get started because of all those ideas. So let's say you're creating a web application. All right, well, what language do you want to do it in? Well, you can do it in Ruby, or you can do it in Elixir. Well, what's Elixir? Oh, you can do it in Python. You can do it in Go. Oh, you can just actually write your backend in JavaScript. Oh, you can do PHP. People are still doing that. So first of all, you don't to even get started. You have to make so many decisions. And then after you get started, you have to think, well, do I just write it? I mean, the purists would be like, well, you don't need frameworks. You know, frameworks, good frameworks make us all better. So you have to figure out your framework. So getting started to get a project moving is harder. But I think with all the tooling that we have now, things are actually a lot better than they used to be. So think in Ruby land, you actually have good debuggers now. In Go land, we're still trying to figure out package management, but it's way better than it was two years ago. And we have a great editor because JetBrains actually created Go land and it just works. 
So if you think back like 2006 in the Ruby land, when DHH first talked about TextMate and what we were using before, like a lot of us, you know, we used whatever we used. There were some Vemers and Emacsers and some Nanoers. TextMate showing us where we could actually be as an editor actually made it easier. So once you get started, I think things are easier, but getting started is actually pretty hard for a lot of teams. And those first missteps they make actually derail projects. I think it's always interesting when I like talking with like brand new startups and just seeing how much integration tooling they have and like they're spending so much time getting the builds sorted out. And I'm like, you haven't deployed the app yet. And you're worried about like continuous deployment and like you're not focusing on the app yet. And you've got like one or two developers figuring out all the logistics for scaling the system and you're not producing code yet. It's, it's, it's been an interesting thing just to kind of watch like when does that stuff make sense to bring it in? And I think it probably benefits from bringing that stuff in sooner than later. But I also wonder if it just seems like everybody else is doing this. So we have to do it. Like it's just the default now is like, there's a lot of things for every app now. Well, for CI, actually, I'll say your first commit should have CI. Let's say you start with the project, no code, just the structure of the code. Figure out how to run that in CI. There's no test. Who cares? And I guess it works. And the reason why you want that is because when someone adds the first feature, they don't have to set up CI too. They just have to make sure that test passed. And if it breaks, we know that it well, it was running with nothing in there and it broke when we put your test in here. So we can actually figure that out. But like I said before, it's those things or those decisions that were made at the beginning that will set the tone for a project. That is true. I think I'm also maybe kind of also thinking about the scenario of like where these junior developers coming into the industry and how much they need to learn about all these different platforms and systems. And they're just trying to figure out how to make a web application, trying to plug all these things together at the same time. There's a, there's a lot of there's a lot to I don't envy just how much they have to pick up on pretty quickly now, but it's good for them, I think. So the thing is, and just a really short thought about this is you don't have to learn everything. You know, my career has been over 25 years. 25 times 365 is a lot. I'm nowhere near being done. I'm over 40 and I'm just as productive and competitive as I've ever been. So realizing that you don't need to be senior in two years in because that's what that's what's happening in jobs now. You you come out of college and two years later, you're a senior. So what are you at 10 years? Well, you're a super senior, you know, staff engineer somewhere. What about 20 years? Well, now you're senior principal staff engineer. The problem with the industry is, is that we've been chasing titles and these titles don't mean anything. Maybe they mean more money. That's some, that's another whole discussion. But I think we set these people up for failure. What we need to do is understand that there is knowledge held by people who've been doing this for a long time. Take the time to learn. You can create crazy good apps with literally no tech these days. So do the simplest thing. And that's how everything should be. It's like writing. It's like doing test driven development. Write the simplest test you can. Write some code. Simplest again. Make it pass. And then you go move on. And that's it. Rather than I'm going to do this next app with the front end, with a Python, with the rest back end. No, 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 no. Do the simplest thing first. You touched on a couple of things that I thought were interesting there, and mainly because they've they've kind of been part of my world. I think the last year or two, and you touched on like titles as a thing, because I think in, as someone that owns a company, the titles that I have for myself, I don't really care that much about. It's never really been part of my something I've ever really considered. I was basically a junior developer at one point, and then I left, and then I started my own company, 
And then I've been whatever the heck I am since then. But now I bring in junior developers and there's, there's always this question is like, well, when do I get promoted to becoming a non-junior developer? And I'm like, difficult question to figure because it's not, it's not a length of time. It's like how much experience you're going to pick up and that kind of, and depending on where you come from, if you work at other jobs, like there's sort of experiences that job provided you to learn different types of things. And so how have you kind of responded to that type of question or what's, what's your take on the drive for titles being a big part of the recruitment and in our industry right now, outside of the salary thing? Cause I think that's a very legit thing. I'm like, if it's just money, let's talk about money, but if it's a title. So I was going to say that in a lot of places, unfortunately, the bands are so narrow to get money that you think you deserve, you have to go up in title. And if we can fix that, and a lot of companies are fixing that. They just have, you know, at a particular level, they have a huge band. And the crazy thing is that someone in a lower band can be making more money than you, but that that's fine. But the titles are important. It's funny. I'm going to break the fourth wall here and talk about something we talked about before. It's like, talk, how do we bring in representation into this conversation? And I will tell you how. I always use my full title. I am an engineer at VMware. I work in R&D, but I always use my full title, senior staff engineer. The reason why is because there's only two levels of engineering above me. There's a fellow who is basically a senior vice president, reports directly to the CEO of a 25,000 person large tech company. And then you have principal engineers. There's less than 50. They are VP level engineers. They are individual contributors, but they control tech across the whole entire company. I am one level above that or below that. So I am somewhere in, in the senior director, above director range. And the reason I bring that up is because of representation. From my accounts, I am the highest ranked black engineer at VMware. And the reason I like to say that is because I want people to see that, you know, when you don't know what to model your success after, you'll shoot super low or you'll shoot way off in left field. What I'm trying to do is so that, yeah, someone that looks like you is actually the highest ranked black engineer or, you know, non-white engineer and not including the Asian ones, but black engineer, you know, black and Latino. I am I am the highest I want people to see that they can get here. Now, I will tell you that to get here, it's hard. It sucks. You will work harder. You will fail more, but it's possible. And what I want people to use their titles for is not just to show them around as like plaques. I mean, use them for plaques whenever whenever um, it's relevant to actually show you belong, but really use your title as these demarcation points in your life so that you started here and 10 years later, you're here. And, you know, and 10 years later, you're here and hopefully you have a career that can go more than 30 years or maybe 40 years and you can see where you go. But use that title to show the world that you were able to accomplish something, especially when the world is sometimes advocating that you should not be able to do any of this stuff. So um, titles are weird. Um, I think they're important until they're not. When it comes to money, I think that's weird and we should fix that. But whenever it comes to showing people, especially like, you know, like I said before, when it comes to black engineers, that's good. But also when it comes to people who don't identify as men and showing that you don't have to fit a certain mold to be in a place. So I'm always keenly interested whenever I see a woman of color who's VP of something at a tech company. I'm like, oh, really? Let me go figure out who you are and go figure out how I can meet you because that's inspiring to me. And I hope it's I hope me being here talking today and doing whatever else I do is inspiring to others as well. 
I really appreciate you kind of providing some background on that. And that, I think you, you bring up some good points there in terms of there is an importance about titles. And I think there's also a non-importance about it in some ways. And I realize my own privilege here that I'm saying this as like a owner of a company and a white male who dropped out of high school. So I've never understood like, why is this stuff important? Because I've probably been giving a lot of uh, affordances over the years to make up for my lack of. Hold on, hold on, hold on. You created Oh My ZSH. I made a lot of noise about it years ago. I had my own version. I started using yours, but now I use fish shell, so it doesn't even matter anymore. I'm just going to come up here and toot your horn. You've actually changed things for the better. Everywhere I go and people are using ZSH, they use your tool. <laughs> and I'm like, I know that guy. <laughs> and the secret about that is, is I'm not a great developer and I barely understand how ZShell works as a, as you've probably seen from the code. It's just, I think one of the things I was able to do is have a playful attitude about it. And it became this weird project where I feel like this is a way for me to experiment with marketing open source, but it's, it's never been like a top priority project and it just keeps growing and people keep using it. And so it's, it's, it's a delightful thing to be part of, but I feel like I neglected. And so it stresses me out and it's also coming up on its 10th anniversary in a couple of weeks. So that's kind of exciting. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I want to thank you for listening to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing it amongst your peers and a writing review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. By chance, is Ruby on Rails an important piece of your organization's software code base? Are you several versions behind the latest Rails stable? Perhaps you don't have time to prioritize figuring out what steps you're going to take because you're too focused on shipping new functionality and keeping users happy. Well, you're in luck. My company, Planet Argon, helps companies with existing Ruby on Rails applications make them better, and as you might guess, more maintainable. We've published a few free resources to help map out a strategy so that your organization can take bigger steps on an overdue upgrade sooner than later. Please visit planetargon.com rails for more details. Again, that's planetargon.com rails. And now back to our interview with Brian Lyles. couple of the things I wanted to quickly dive into, and you're talking about productivity as a developer. Do you believe in the myth of the elusive 10x developer? Yeah, I do believe in the, in the myth of the 10x developer, but I also believe that you've never met them because throughout my years, I've seen and heard of a handful of people, like literally a handful, maybe, maybe up to 10, who did things that no mere mortal, even given a lot of time, could do. And they were legitimately 10 times more productive. But when I talk about these people, I used to work for the guy who created BGP, 10X guy, no doubt. I've worked with some people who've done some crazy things around network security and actual application security. So much more productive than anyone else, 10X people. And then you have people like Alistair Cockburn and you have people who were just so much into tuned to the code. They are literally 10 times better than you, probably more. But they're very rare. This whole trope of the 10x developer for us mere mortals does not exist. But I do believe that there are people who can enable 10x productivity on a team. So they're multipliers, and which is what we all should be able to do. So on my team, I create interfaces and structures and things to help my junior developers operate at a higher level. I, you know what? There's there's definitely an X there. And it might be sometimes it's 10, sometimes it's more, sometimes it's two. But that's really what we should be shooting for. We shouldn't be shooting for this whole, you know, I'm a, I'm just Uber developer that I can do all these crazy things. 
really what it is is software is written in teams and all great software that you've ever used is written by a team. The real multipliers there are the people who can make the whole team more productive, not just individuals who are just really good at writing software. And I will say this one thing. I'm actually really good at writing software, but I wouldn't consider myself that kind of person. I've, I've written some, some good things, but never anything that has changed the course of the world. Also, in your experience in the industry, have you found yourself more often on Team Rewrite or Team Refactor? No, I'm on Team Build All the Things. I am that developer. I'm the developer that says, we have a hard problem to solve. We don't know what we're going to do here. Or things are hard. Okay. And I can give a couple examples of this over the past few years. I used to work at DigitalOcean. I was one of the first engineers there. I was, think I was the first remote engineer there. You know, DigitalOcean is a cloud and we had lots of virtual machines called droplets. And we were spinning up tons of these. But the problem is we were changing our stack and we couldn't figure out if we were breaking things in the stack. Crazy, I know. But I'm out of my NDA, so this is all good. So I wrote this thing because we were experimenting with Go at the time. And I wrote an API client in Go. The reason that I wrote it was because I wanted to run smoke tests for myself. But what I found out is that it actually just made life better for everyone. Everyone was able to be more productive because they had a great Go API client. And a few months later, I actually said, I'm going to be a developer advocate. So I moved to marketing. I'm not a developer advocate anymore. I'm back into engineering. But the whole time I was over there, I was writing software. I was out talking to customers and potential customers and the field in general. And I wanted to demo DigitalOcean, but I hated their website. So I created the DigitalOcean command line client. You know, dude from marketing did this. Throughout the years, I'm actually just really good at solving problems with computers. And the same thing with this Octant tool. It came from a discussion that me and the old CTO had one afternoon about, I want to see what my workloads look like. And instead of, you know, getting confused on that, I just sat down and started drawing pictures. And then from drawing those pictures, I could quickly make those into code. And then I could actually, I know enough HTML and CSS that I was able to make it useful. So I am actually, I mean, I can be on Team Refactor. I can be on Team Maintain, but I'm on, I'm actually better on Team Greenfield. I'm the person that at this stage of my career that we build platforms around. I have these ideas. Let's go make Brian's ideas real. Two last questions. What book do you find yourself most often recommending to software developers? Oh my gosh. I'm a turnaround. Um, oh, I know. Um, it's not really even a book. I tell software developers to go learn statistics. Go know what a P number is. Go learn what a quantile is. Go learn what P99 actually means and understand that a number is basically, you know, you have your main part and your confidence level. That's what I tell developers to learn. Second book, like the Pragmatic Programmer book. So my job went to India, like the old Pragmatic Programmer books. I like those books because they give more of the softer side of development. And contrary to popular belief, you know, developers are people who have feelings. Sometimes they're not as complicated as they should be, but we do have feelings. So let's go read about other, let's go read about other people's successes and failures and try to build our life with those learnings rather than just thinking we're the smartest people in the room and going to go um, create our own thing. So those sort of things. But I also like to tell people to read math books. Like I have, I'm just looking behind me right now. I have a crazy amount of math books behind me and they're all like weird, like combinatorial stuff. 
go understand how calculus works, not how you were taught in high school and your first year or two in college. Go understand what calculus is for. You know, we, we want to um, we want to do derivatives. Go understand what trigonometry is for. You know, it's all about slopes. That's what I want people to understand. And I think what it comes down to, it's not um, how to solve a problem. I want you to know why we solved the problem in that way. And I'll give you one little anecdote is I don't have time to read a lot. I move around a lot. And when I'm not in front of the computer, I don't like to look at things unless it's like video games. I listen to probably about 40 to 50 books on tape a year. And right now I'm in this deep in this science thing where I'm in quantum mechanics and like chemistry. So what I'm saying is don't stop learning just because you think you know something. Go learn something. It's like not what you do every day. I'm not saying go read fiction or anything because I don't like fiction, but go learn something you didn't you didn't know before. Go read a book. Go outside. Go look up. Go look at the sky. I don't know. Um, you just got to be something other than a developer. The developer shouldn't be the thing that you identify as, as your whole life is like, I'm a, just a developer. Like you're a human being. You're probably a lot more complicated than that. And I think in the future, as this becomes more and more of a, we, as we make it easier with the tools we're building for people to contribute and make things with software, how are we going to distinguish ourselves from each other if we're all contributing and we all work in tech or, you know, it'll, it'll be an interesting future where we, we need to find other ways to kind of talk about not so much that, what, you know, that's something we have in common. And I'm going to say we have to highlight our differences, but it is an aspect to the, I think, the human condition to, to show that we're more than just our career, I think. And where can people learn more about you online? Uh, I don't know. I have like three websites, but none of them work right now because I was messing around with something and my websites went down. You can go find me on Twitter, Brian L. If you don't believe I write code, Brian L on GitHub. That's B-R-Y-A-N-L. I have a brianl.dev, but I don't use it for anything. How do you find me out there? Either Twitter or my GitHub, or you can come see me speak. I, I still do that. And just as a little shout out is I actually run or help run the largest open source conference in the world. It's called KubeCon slash CloudNativeCon. Come find me there. We're doing a 10,000 person open source event in San Diego in November. I hear it's nice out there at the time of year. So that's where I am. But actually, you know what? If you don't need to go find me, I'm, I, I show up. What I'd rather you do is go donate some money. Instead of finding me, go donate some money to people who are allowing people to have women's health or fighting racism or just trying to make the world better. Uh, that would be a better use of your time. Do you have any recommendations on where people should go to for that? Um, no, I will not tell you. Go find what you're passionate about. I will tell you what I've done recently. I've done ACLU. I've done the Southern Law Poverty Center, the racist. And then something else that I don't talk about very often. When I see people on social media who are saying if they had something like an oscilloscope or a computer and they could just move further in life, I just send them one in the mail. So do that. And actually, and this is what I will leave you with. My only goal in life is to leave the world better than I found it. You know, I've been blessed with, with some fortune, some success. And after I die, it's not useful to me. So I might as well get rid of it before I go. Well, thank you so much, Brian. It's been such a delight having you on Maintainable. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for asking me to show up. This has been great. <laughs>